Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's October 6th, 1889. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Nonchalance. Joie de vivre. Belle époque. We. Oui. <laughs> it was today in history in 1899 that the world's most famous cabaret, Moulin Rouge, swung open its grand entrance. <laughs> Yeah, so the Moulin Rouge was the vision of two businessmen who very much had their fingers on the pulse of Parisian society, Joseph Oller and Charles Ziedler, who between them established this new club that was meant to appeal to people from all walks of life, the very wealthy to the very lowliest uh, workers, because it was a place where the bourgeois could get their debauchery on and the, you know, and they could fraternize with the ladies of the night and so on, and artists and writers could come along and really be inspired for some of the things that, as we know, came to be their very best material. So it was a place for of extremes. Yeah, and when it opened its doors, it wasn't called the Moulin Rouge, that would come later, it was called the Jardin de Paris, the Paris Garden, and the reason was, is that it actually was a garden, and I think when you look at the facade, that actually makes perfect sense. I've always thought the facade looks a bit underwhelming mm-hmm. and strange, because it's so low, but if you think of it as being almost like you know when you go onto a historic pier and you get you walk through something a bit like mm. that and then you go onto the pit it was almost like that so when the customers would have come in on this day they were walking into a garden you know this is in the middle of what was called the Belle Epoque this four decade stretch of peace and prosperity artistic flourishing in France particularly centered around Paris you know it was the global tastemaker for culture and one feature that was associated with the Belle Epoque life in Paris was the Café Concert which was kind of an outdoor music hall there would be a stage you'd see performances but also you know you weren't sitting in rows in a theatre, you were sitting around tables, you could smoke, you could drink, you could eat, it was very picturesque. I mean, to be fair, I think across all of France forever and always you could smoke and eat right yeah. <laughs> that was a reason to go always been a pro-smoking pro-eating society <laughs> yeah um, but you know at the time it was well of course it's still in Montmartre but now obviously a very central area of Paris very beloved by tourists then a bohemian district on the very edge of the city it had not that long before been a country town known for its windmills hence the name Moulin Rouge red windmill including ones that ground gypsum for plaster of Paris but because of industrialization these had you know these small scale mills had been phased out and that but that big mill over the entrance to the jardin was a nod to the history and you know to elegant parisians montmartre was still there quite an edgy place where you could mingle well or at least imagine you were mingling with people from all walks of life and if you look at photos from this opening era of moulin rouge like the image that everyone 
sort of uh, posts up on their website is the giant stucco elephant, mm. which actually I had assumed was like some invention of Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> I just assumed there might be some historical record of a giant stucco elephant in Paris. Uh, and indeed there was, because it was from the Paris Universal exhibit of 1889. But Zidler and uh, Ola purchased it and stuck it in the Jardin de Paris. And for a franc, gentlemen could climb up into this giant elephant where inside they would find an opium den filled with belly dancers. <laughs> I mean, you can see why that was appealing and sort of fit with the general kind of fevered imagination that had inspired this place. It was the work of a French artist, Adolphe Willette, and it was really unlike anything people had seen before and fit in with other aspects of the construction, including the fact that the walls were hung with these enormous mirrors that then reflected the light of the huge chandeliers that were suspended from the ceiling. So altogether, it was this absolutely amazing space. And crucially also, because everything blended into everything else with the, the sort of dance floor meeting, the tables and all of that, it meant that you were watching the dancers from right up close. And as it happened, they started to do this increasingly scandalous dance as the venue became increasingly famous. Yeah, there was a tantalising atmosphere of informality because, as you say, people were very up close to the stage. They were outside and you had people, you know, high and low. You had the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII. He visited the year after it opened. I love the way people always throw that fact in as if like, oh, it's a surprise to find a member of the British aristocracy <laughs> surrounded by beautiful French women yeah. in a boudoir. It's amazing I mean, it took him a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he was probably used to being treated with a little bit more respect at them than he was at the Moulin Rouge. The famous Dancer La Goulou, who was in the middle of her performance on stage, spotted him in the audience and called out mid-kick, "Hey Wales, the champagne's on you." Nice. <laughs> uh, but um, you mentioned the can-can. Yeah, what's so scandalous about the can-can? You might be thinking, and I think I thought this before as well. It was an uptight era. Seeing women's legs was considered scandalous, but that wasn't what was considered scandalous. When the can-can first developed in the 1830s, women often weren't wearing undergarments at all in the modern sense. They were wearing their dress under the dress. They were wearing petticoats but because of the dress and the petticoats if they'd also been wearing underwear in the modern sense they wouldn't have been able to go to the loo so they wore what were called pantalettes they were almost like cloth gaiters so they would protect the you know protect the wearer from prying eyes should a gust mm. of wind expose their ankles but they didn't have a crotch they were crotchless they were single legs so that you could use the bathroom without having to take anything else off in addition to all the layers you're already wearing and now you can see why the cancan was considered very scandalous mm. yes although it wasn't their naked bottoms that were presented to the audience. It was a kind of a hint of that. And in fact, Lagulu, the, the lady we were just talking about, Louise Weber was her real name, but Lagulu was her sort of stage name, which means the glutton, because she was known for <laughs> taking people's drinks as she danced around their tables. Um, her signature move, bending over at the end of the can-can, uh, was to present her drawers with a heart embroidered upon them. <laughs> well, there was a strange detail that I found, which was that the can-can had actually originated on the other side of the channel in London. It was in 1861 when uh, Charles Morton, who was a great master of the music hall, uh, he was inspired by the quadrille, which was a more traditional dance, and he uh, was involved in inventing the French can-can. And the can-can referred to the particularly noisy characteristic of this 
this new dance. But whereas British people tended to be quite scandalised by it, it was really, really popular as soon as it got to Paris and sort of found its home there. It's interesting, isn't it, for something that is seen as being so quintessentially Parisian that so many of the ideas in it were developed from international influences and, frankly, being presented to international tourists, as is still the case. If you go to the Moulin Rouge now, it's like 50-50 Parisians and tourists, right? And that's partly because of that universal exhibit of 1889. We've talked about the influence of that on the show before, you know, the development of the the Paris Metro, um, the Eiffel Tower. And like I say, this, this giant elephant came from there. The elephant actually was inspired by a seven-story tourist attraction from Coney Island hmm. in New York. And the French saw it as trying to build a bit of Americana in Paris. And yet again, it's been repurposed as this thing that feels very French. Well, ironically, the funny thing is that we regard Paris at this moment as existing in this uh, time of broad moral degeneracy that was being embraced wholeheartedly, broadly, by the people who were living in Paris. And, you know, the, the age is often referred to as the fin de siècle. But as well as being marked by this sort of ge- degeneracy, there was also a, an air of slight cynicism and boredom. You know, a lot of the people back then didn't see the era's new cultural advances as wholly good. They saw them as signs of a kind of overindulgence that would lead in future to degeneracy. Well, we've talked about the can-can. Obviously, that remains the most famous element of the performances that went on at the Moulin Rouge and still go on now. But, you know, if you're thinking, well, what else was there? Am I just sitting down with my drink and watching women in frilly knickers can-can for 90 minutes? No. As well as the dancers, there there were all kinds of things on at the Moulin Rouge. There were operettas, theatrical reviews, clowns, acrobats, tableau, which just seems like an excuse for women in you know, slightly skimpy costumes to pose as sexy versions of historical figures, uh, but also novelty acts like Le Petomaine, you may have heard of, um, born Joseph Pujol. The common misconception about Le Petomaine is that he farted. He did not fart. He had an unusual skill. Apparently, once uh, as a child, he was swimming in a cold sea. He suddenly felt a strange rush. And from that day on, he could control the airflow in and out of his rectum. Isn't that just farting? No, it wasn't gas. He would inhale the air in through his buttocks. (laughs) Then he would use that air. He would express it totally under his control. He used it to imitate animal sounds. He could do other noises. He could do cannon. Uh, He could also (laughs) play tunes by attaching an ocarina to his anus via a rubber tube. See, now I want to see the deleted scene where Ewan McGregor does that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the world's filthiest form of beatboxing. <laughs> well, what's really funny about it is that they had, you know, advertising and, you know, promoting his appearances there, but, you know, they didn't have sound. So all of the posters are of him just slightly squatting in a slightly suggestive manner. And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.